Hey everyone, welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I'm your host, Russ Bankson, and after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by co-host Alex Wong to recap and walk through all the major talking points of this documentary series. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Soul Savvy team for giving Alex and I this space to chat about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, please check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. For episode four, we join Dennis Rodman's Las Vegas vacation already in progress. And, you know, as Mike alluded to at the end of episode three, this 48 hours probably was not going to just be 48 hours. And, uh, you know, they addressed it properly. They put it up in, you know, as, as long as he's been gone with permission to all of a sudden being gone without permission. And I think they ran it out to like 80 something hours. I, I forget how long it was before we cut to Dennis in Las Vegas living his best life. So two things, Russ. Number one, best opening of the episode because they play big pun, still not a player. Big pun, capital punishment. My all-time favorite personal album number two can we talk about how there was a camera crew following dennis around in vegas we're we're talking about this before we before we started recording and like i can't decide whether i can't imagine that was an espn camera crew getting footage for this like i would imagine that was a dennis hired camera crew getting footage for something else entirely that we probably don't want to know about also i'm guessing that camera crew was hammered by the end of their nights we get a Carmen Electra cameo because she was with Dennis at the time. And one of the best quotes of the series, she says that it was an occupational hazard being Dennis's girlfriend. So Michael, at this point, obviously Dennis has passed his 48 hours that the Bulls were going to allow him to be away. And present day Michael remembers that he had to go get Dennis and drag him back to practice. And Carmen Electra remembers that she had to hide behind the couch when Michael came in. Clarify this for me, Russ. So did Mike go to Vegas to get Dennis back? I mean, look, that's that's the way it sounded. I mean, Carmen Electra certainly made it sound like he showed up in the room, which, I mean, I don't know. There, there are a lot of people who would strike the fear of God in me if they came into my hotel room, like, randomly in the morning. And Michael Jordan is pretty way up there. I could just imagine Michael Jordan going to the front desk at whatever Vegas hotel it is and demanding Dennis Rodman's room number and I guess a key. And, you know, who's going to say no to Michael Jordan, but uh, especially an enraged Michael Jordan, which is a subject we will return to a bit later in this show. But yeah, like, you know, it's like, did Phil tell Michael, like, you go get him? Like, you'd think you would take like a bench guy to do that because I could just imagine, like, in this sort of, you know, ongoing thing. Like, first of all, sending Michael Jordan to Vegas seems like a bad idea in and of itself. Like, cause all of a sudden he'd be gone for 48 hours and you find him at a blackjack table, you know, throwing down like literally like a hundred grand on a hand and smoking. Uh, I, I don't know what the good cigars are, but you know, yeah. Sending Jordan to Vegas seemed like a terrible idea, but it worked out. I would have sent, who, who would you have sent? I think I would have sent Bill Wennington just cause he seems like a sensible guy who would just go get the job done. Although even Bill Wennington, I think Bill Wennington, you know, back in 98, he was only in the beginning of his Sons of Anarchy days. So, you know, maybe he wasn't quite there yet, but I could still see him joining Dennis Rodman's, you know, Harley gang. I think like 
either Kerr or I don't even know, maybe Harp. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know who the responsible types are. Judd Bushler looked responsible with his, his glasses on in the previous episode, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if Judd's the guy either. Can we take an interlude to talk about all the former Bulls that have shown up in this doc? BJ Armstrong, who looks like a 14-year-old in a 30-year-old's body. I do love the fact that the way they've done this is like the former Bulls are kind of trickling in. You know, you had Jordan Pippen and Rodman from the beginning, and then like, you know, you get a surprise Joe Klein here, a Judd Bushler there, a Will Perdue, and my personal favorite, who we'll get to a little bit later in more depth in this episode, Horace Grant. Oh, Horace Grant. I mean, we're recording this before the episodes actually air. I have no doubt that Horace Grant will be trending on Twitter this weekend after the episode. I I think you're right. And I would still like someone to address the fact that apparently Horace uh, reabsorbed his twin, Harvey Grant, far later than you're supposed to be able to do that in a biological sense. Horace is big. (laughs) So Dennis comes back and Michael remembers this running drill that Phil puts Indian the team drill. Very, yes, very I w- correct. Yeah, I wanted to avoid mentioning that, to be honest. And we, we could have a whole separate discussion about Phil Jackson's sort of Native American co-opting and like how kind of uncomfortable some of it is. Yeah, no, I think we're going to get to that on the next point. So there's this running drill and basically put it most simply, the guys run and when Phil blows the whistle, whoever is at the front, that's who everyone has to catch. They have to pass the guy at the front of the pack. And this is setting up to show that, hey, Dennis has gone on this crazy Vegas binge. He's going to be obviously out of shape. He's going to be the last to finish this race. And it turns out that he was running faster than everyone. And MJ and everyone took four laps to catch up to Dennis. Dennis was the epitome of work hard, play hard, man. Like MJ put it best. He said Dennis was always on point when he was there. And he was. Yeah, I would also like to give a shout out to MJ's fit that day when he showed up at practice with that FIBA, I think it was a McDonald's championship jacket and the black and white 13s. And of course, you know, we've seen him in prior episodes driving a Corvette and now he's driving a Ferrari 575. So Mike's doing all right for himself in case anyone was worried, which I don't think anyone really was. So we transition then into Phil Jackson, you know, as a way to talk about Rodman and Phil's relationship and Dennis in present day really appreciates how much Phil understood him and he says that quote he didn't look at me as a basketball player he looked at me as a great friend and Phil remembers that the two of them had a meeting in Phil's office which like you mentioned is filled with Native American and Indian artifacts and they bond over this and Phil tells him that he would be a Hayoka which in a tribe is a backwards walking person (laughs) what did you make of this whole scene and feel free to speak on phil and his uh native american backgrounds i mean they talk about phil growing up in montana you know he went to college in north dakota obviously he had you know he was in proximity to a lot of these native traditions and and i think he also adopted a lot of them you know as he saw fit and I, i think it's interesting that you know dennis to this day obviously called phil a friend and whatever else and it's like to me, and maybe this is overstating it in both directions, but to me, there's a there's still a touch of like naivete in Dennis where it's like he's trusting of people. And I think there's more than a touch of manipulator in Phil where like he'll use things as he sees fit, whether it's 
a Native American tradition or a person. You know, he'll he'll figure out how to get the best out of people and use that approach to get the best out of them. Um, I would be curious to know how much Phil and Dennis have communicated in the years since they won championships together. I'm guessing it's not a friendship level of contact, you know, but, but, but it was also cool to see Phil's path, you know, from the son of two pastors to, you know, using basketball as an escape that led him to both play in college, win a championship with the Knicks, and then go on this strange winding road as a coach dubbed as such by his own coach, Red Holtzman, to go coach in Puerto Rico, where they apparently sacrificed chickens. And, uh, you know, his return to coaching in America in the CBA, where he wins a championship with the wonderfully named Albany Patroons before Isaiah Thomas drove the CBA out of business. But that's a whole separate discussion. We'll get to Isaiah at one point or another in this episode, I think, Russ. Russ, you forgot the Puerto Rico. You forgot to mention, listen, man, killing a chicken and pouring the blood on the visiting team's bench was actually number two to the mayor shooting an official with a gun and hitting him in the lower leg at one point. And, and his punishment, banned from home games. he's banned from home games. So you're saying he could still travel on the road to like the small town, neighboring small town and shoot another ref. In the and. Leg. and- I would also be remiss if I did not mention, and shout out to my man, Ryan Jones, that Charlie Rosen is perhaps best remembered for an ESPN page two column where he said LeBron James would be nothing more than an average player. And that if Cleveland fans thought they were getting more than that in the draft, they were getting their hopes up too far. So shout out to Charlie Rosen still getting to talk about basketball after that. Yeah, Charlie Rosen shows up here to talk about Phil because he helped him write his book Maverick. Uh did you Which, notice by the way by <laughs> yeah, the way this? <laughs> I spent I spent I think $50 on eBay to get a first edition copy of Maverick in part because of the story that um Charlie Rosen relates about him taking LSD which unfortunately is just a very small bit of the story. Where does that rank in your top 10 worst purchases? Does it make the list? Oh, no, 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 no. It's still definitely a great purchase. I mean, it's been out of print for a long time. It was published by Playboy published it. I mean, that's a whole separate podcast discussion someday too, is my my basketball book library, which is absurd. I actually have like, I mean, even if I just even look up here, like I have multiple books by Portland Trailblazer coaches that are signed. Like let's, I have Rick Adelman's book on the 91 Trailblazers season. That's amazing. Did, did you notice the shirt that Charlie was wearing in the doc? Man. He was wearing a Woodstock stars and heroes, celebrity softball game t-shirt. Oh my God. I did miss that. I did miss that. The one thing I did notice in the prior episode that I failed to mention that I meant to look up was Dennis Rodman's, 47 class of Balboa hat. I, w- I was wondering what the hell that had to do with anything. And I never actually got around to looking it up. So I'm going to do that after this. So like you mentioned, we traced through Phil's coaching career in Puerto Rico and then winning the CBA championship in Albany. Then at this point in the eighties, Jerry Krause wants to bring Phil Jackson into the Bulls organization. And this was hilarious to me too. So the first time Phil interviews is for an assistant job with Stan Albeck, who was the coach at the time. And Jerry Krause recalls that he just didn't dress as conservatively as Stan would have liked and just didn't get the job. Can you imagine that? 
I mean, I think I guess the NBA in general was just a little more uh, staid in that sense. But like, I don't know, like at the same time, I look back to the ABA or I look back to like Dr. Jack and what he was wearing when he coached the Blazers. Like you would think that weird clothing was the least of his problems. Like I wonder sometimes if that story, if we're not hearing everything, like part of me thinks that Phil like went and lit a joint in the bathroom and got caught like during the interview or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. I have, I have trouble believing that he didn't get hired just because he wore like a flannel shirt to the interview. But I mean, obviously like it goes on and he makes up for it. And apparently, you know, Jerry told him basically what to say and what to wear when he interviewed with Doug Collins for a different assistant job, you know, where he's hired alongside Tex Winter, who was, I mean, I don't think Jerry Krause has spoken as glowingly of any of the Bulls players as he does of Tex Winter, who, you know, back in the, I guess, early 60s, came up with the triangle offense when he was a coach at Kansas State. You know, and Jerry obviously wanted the triangle to become part of the Bulls offense. And Doug Collins, meanwhile, had the single point offense, which was, we have Michael Jordan, let's get him the ball all the time. Yeah, and it's funny, present day Doug Collins at some point talks about how he had a feeling that Phil was going to become a head coach and the interviewer tries to prod him for more details. And he just smirks and says, you know, I just, I just had a feeling, I think in retrospect, Doug banning Tex winter from coaching on the bench and making him take notes in practice that, that did not age well for Doug Collins. It didn't age well for Doug Collins, but it also doesn't really look good for Jerry Krause because I don't know. I, I feel like there's never a time when the GM hires a coach and the coaching staff that it works out well for the coach. You know, you, you're, you're kind of at the whim of what the GM wants. And if the GM hires an assistant, he likes better than you. There's not much you can do about it. I mean, to Doug Collins credit, he was hired to be the coach and essentially got fired for being the coach. One of my favorite scenes too, is Phil drawing up a series of diagrams of plays on the locker room whiteboard. And Michael's just giving him such a hard time about it. Little do you guys know, you guys are going to be like the best player coach partnership of all time. Right. And Phil, like also, I think a little bit earlier, maybe of Phil breaking down video, you know, it's like him doing, it was cool seeing him do all those little things that, you know, assistant coaches have to do, you know, which paid off because Krause ends up firing Doug Collins after he gets the Bulls to their first Eastern Conference Finals. Again, to Krause's credit, he calls Jordan in to tell him before he does it. And Jordan reacts like most people would, being like, yeah, people are going to trip out about this. Yeah, it makes me a little sad, too, knowing how much the relationship's frayed, especially with Phil and Jerry Krause a decade later, that, you know, these were the innocent times for these guys. But if you look at, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing is like, how do I want to put this? It's one of those things where like, if you're, if you date someone who's married, you know, and like break up their marriage, like, how do you be shocked later on if you marry this person and then your marriage breaks up? And it's kind of the same thing. Like Phil Collins, uh, Phil Collins, Jesus, Phil Jackson. What, gets how many this championships if Phil Collins coached the Bulls? Tell me right now, Put, putting you on the spot. I can't Russ. believe I just did that. Um, six. But, uh, you know, F Phil Jackson gets this job because the GM is willing to undercut the coach. And, like, it shouldn't have been shocking that the GM later undercuts him. No, I, I think that's a really good point. So Phil Jackson takes over as head coach for the 1990 season. And here we're going to finally see the transformation of 
not just Jordan into a championship player, but the Bulls making their way into finally a championship team. And so we go out of Michael being this guy who's averaging 35 plus points a game. And Phil tells him that, Hey, with the triangle offense, it's about making the rest of the team better. And Michael has my favorite quote of the week when he says, I didn't want Bill Cartwright to have the ball with five seconds left on the clock. That's not equal opportunity offense. That's bullshit. (laughs) It was amazing to see hearing like their initial reactions and like, you know, Scotty Pippen was like, this is great. We're going to be team oriented. And Michael Jordan being like Doug Collins, had the offense to put the ball out of my hands and Phil has the offense to take the ball out of my hands. And like, he didn't like it, but you know, to Jordan's credit, he does eventually buy in. And we get to the 1990 Eastern conference finals, which is a rematch of the previous season when the bulls lost to the Pistons. This time it goes to seven games And this is the Scottie Pippen migraine game. He starts getting headaches in the morning. And at one point, he can't even see when he's playing on the court. And the the Bulls eventually get blown out on the road. Do you have anything that you wanted to add to this game or this series? I mean, that was... That was obviously terrible. You know, it's like you look at what the Bulls went through the year before. And like, for me as a fan, it's like you think like, okay, this is the year. Like, we're going to break through. And for something like that to happen, like, you know, it's just... I think in hindsight, you look at it and you especially look at the way Pippen talked about it. And even Jordan was, you know, pretty sympathetic in the current day about it. But like in the moment, you just can't accept that. You know, it's like, how can this in, how can this entire season be derailed by something as mundane as a headache? And like, I don't know, I thought I thought John Sally actually gave, you know, the best sort of rundown of that being like, you know, it's imagine going out there with a headache, throwing up, not being able to see straight, and you're going to get guarded by Dennis Rodman. Like, yeah, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And like, to me, I'm sure like, despite the six championships that came after, you know, I'm sure there's some level of Pippen that feels terrible about it. And I'm sure there's a huge part of Jordan that's like, this could have been seven. Yeah, well, you you see Jordan really, I mean, we've established, you know, Michael is a huge fan of Scotty. And he has said that, you know, when you talk about Michael Jordan, you make sure you talk about Scotty Pippen. But when he's asked about this in present day, he's just straining. And he says, listen, man, he said he had a migraine. So he had a migraine. But you know what? You know what else was really striking? Like they showed the end of that game and sort of the aftermath of it. And Jordan's postgame interview was just so incredibly gracious to Detroit you know he called them the better team multiple times and whether he believed it or not is is sort of immaterial but he said all you can do is wish them good luck you know it's like he's actually saying like go win a championship to the guys he hates more than anybody else which to me is like I don't know I mean that that just was foreshadowing too but incredibly gracious for someone who's that much of a competitor Yeah, especially in the moment, right? Like he just lost a chance to go to his first NBA finals. Right afterwards, right afterwards. And he talks about it, you know, they show him afterwards. And like, to me, that's the fit of the episode when he's wearing this orange patterned like rayon shirt in the locker room. And the lockers are like orange yellow. He's wearing like locker room camo. And he's just sitting there like staring into space, you know, and talks about getting on the bus to go back to uh, Chicago and crying. And his dad has to basically tell him like, it's all right. You know, you, you'll get them. Yeah. And again, another trash NBA locker room this week. 
in Detroit. That was terrible. So after the loss, this becomes the turning point for the Bulls and the team. Basically, everyone gets in the weight room, and Tim Grover shows up and says that he would tell Mike to do six reps and he would do 12. Yeah. And and MJ just said, hey, man, like I was tired of getting beat up. Like I want to administer pain. And we flash to the following season, 91, which is the buildup to another Bulls-Pistons Eastern Conference Finals matchup. And this time, the Bulls get over the hump. They sweep the Pistons. And this is where and this is where Horace Grant comes in at his kitchen table or wherever he's sitting. And like, you know, it's one of those things where like I was happy that we get to Horace in episode four and upset that we didn't get more Horace in episodes one through three because he's just amazing. Like one of his earliest scenes in that is when he says about Michael that he would look and just see a screaming devil because <laughs> Mike was so mad at him. And you can kind of see a little bit of that with Jordan too in the current day talking about Horace and like laughing about it, about how, you know, Horace would just always get beat up and then go whine. But it, during that same little commentary section by Jordan, he talks about Pippin. And I thought that was great. Like those were some great insights where he says, the thing about Pip is you stand next to him and make him stronger. And then goes on to say, like, I'll fight with you, just fight. I could just imagine how for Jordan, that must have been such a painful thing for him to deal with for so long with both Grant and Pippen. But at the same time, for what a relief and what satisfaction he must have felt when those guys did start fighting back. And when, you know, they did realize, like, nah, this is our league now. Yeah, I I thought that was a great transition Michael talking about that relationship with Scotty. And then shortly after you see when Rodman commits that flagrant foul on Scotty in the closing game of the 91 conference finals. And maybe the old bulls would have been shook by that. They would have responded. They would have been thrown off. Mm-hmm. Pippen just got up, hit his free throws and they wrapped up the series and people are going to be talking about this next segment. I mean, I know a lot of us are familiar with it, but we get some new insight into the Pistons deciding to walk off the floor with seven seconds left on the clock, and they walk right past the Bulls bench. And every time I see this clip, the look on Michael's face is just incredible to me, Um, especially knowing what's going to happen with the Michael, Isaiah, uh, I don't even know what you call it, their their beef heading into the 90s with the Dream Team and all that stuff. Uh, before I even get your thoughts on this, man, present day Horace Grant is asked about it and he called the Pistons straight up bitches. Again, Hor- Horace should have been in every episode. You know, like j- just the stuff he said, like even going back to when Pippen got shoved into the stands and Horace's response to it is like, let's finish kicking their ass. I'm like, all right, Horace, Horace could be the narrator of this whole thing. But Isaiah, like th- that whole sequence, I mean, it's just the full Isaiah. You know, like first he 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 throws Bill Lambeer under the bus. Bill Lambeer is not in this documentary. And he says and like they show a highlight of Lambeer coming over to Isaiah. So maybe that's what was happening. But he says, like, yeah, Lambeer said we're leaving without shaking their hands. So first of all, Isaiah is supposedly the team leader. And his first reaction is to blame someone else. And then his follow up to that is like, well, of course, if we knew there was going to be all this blowback, we would have done something different, which is like the bullshit aspect number two you're supposed to do things the right thing because it's the right thing to do not because you get criticized for it and the coup de gras which is probably my favorite moment of this episode is when the producers are like hey mike we want to you know we want you to see 
something Isaiah said. And, and he, Jordan's onto it from the beginning. He's like, first of all, like, I don't care what Isaiah says. Like, there's no way he can justify any of this to the point where he says, there's no way you can convince me he wasn't an asshole. And it's true. Like, Jordan had Isaiah pegged on the whole thing about how, you know, he's only going to say that it was the wrong thing to do because he got pushback about it. And he did. And then, like, you know, you have one aspect of him blaming it on Lambeer, and then he's blaming it on the Celtics because they left the floor early the year before. And it's just like, and Jordan's right. He brings up, like, yo, like, we lost to them twice in a row and congratulated them in game sevens. So... I think it was bullshit for Isaiah to say that that's just how it was at the time. And to bring the Celtics into it, this is strictly Pistons Bulls. And they had played for three straight Eastern Conference finals. And we clearly saw, and like you mentioned, Michael, even immediately after losing to the Pistons the year before, was so gracious in talking about them and you know wishing them well in the finals. And nothing bothers Michael more, I think, than when people disrespect what he considers the quote-unquote rules of the game. I think when you hear Michael talk about how the Bulls were trying to tank his second season in the league, he says that's just not how the game is played. You play to win. And same thing with the sportsmanship thing. You lose, you shake hands. Michael, you know, to his credit, said, you know, it, he, it was the hardest thing for him to congratulate those guys after beat, losing to them two straight years. And he did it. And for them to just walk off like that, you can understand why Mike still holds that grudge against Isaiah. And I think, you know, it could be oversimplifying here. And I don't want to oversimplify, but I will. You know, Jordan went to college and played for a legendary coach. And Dean Smith, like, you know, I feel like winning for him was one thing, but like sportsmanship was a key portion of that. You know, like it would have been for like a John Wooden or, you know, pick another coach. Isaiah Thomas went to Indiana and played for a legendary asshole. Like that is some straight up Bobby Knight bullshit is leaving the floor without congratulating anybody. And just like having it in your head that you're the better team. And like, you know, you're, you're going to react this way. I, I don't know. And again, like now I'm being Isaiah and I'm putting his actions on somebody else. But, you know, I, I think like, a simple way to look at that could be, you know, there could be something from that. Yeah. So, and then we get to the Bulls and the Lakers in Michael's well, first finals. Yep. Get to that, I had a weird thing in this episode. So they show a lot of this celebration and them getting on the plane and you have the wonderful scene of Scottie Pippen dancing in the aisle with a bottle of champagne and then Jerry Krause dancing in the aisle with a Gatorade cup full of something that's not Gatorade. But there's a moment when they show Jordan and he's wearing his suit jacket over a t-shirt. You're talking about the three Pete, the three Pete shirt, right? Three Pete with a question mark. And to me that, why would he be wearing a three Pete shirt after they finally won, broke through in the conference finals? Like I was wondering if that was the wrong footage and that was from, you know, the finals against the Suns. Like, I, I don't know like where that was from, but the three Pete shirt confused me. My only other thought, see, I picked up on that too. And if it is at the same time, if the Pistons were going for a three-peat at the time, right? Because they had one in 89 and 90. Yeah. I, I don't know if Michael was wearing a troll shirt, but then it doesn't make that, sense because it was Bulls colors. Right, right, right. But maybe that's, 
No, you're probably right. Maybe that is something they did as a troll that they got printed up because obviously Jordan was confident about everything. So yeah, that, that, that's a good call. You know, it threw me off a little too, because I don't know, maybe I'm just more, more modern day, but you don't see teams celebrating like that, or at least you don't see footage of it when they make right. the finals. Right. Also shout out to Jordan's uh, slant nose Porsche Cabrio. That was a uh, very nice car. Mike's had a, uh, a good collection running through these first four episodes. Yeah, I've been meaning to uh, keep track of his vanity plates. <laughs> a lot of them because <laughs> they all similar, say like think, two Trey, two three MJ. So they make the finals. They beat Magic and the Lakers in five games, and the producers bring the triangle offense, Phil Jackson story, full circle in the clinching game five when the teams are tied at eighty, heading into the fourth, and Phil's in the huddle telling. Michael over and over again that, hey, you don't need to go up against this double team and try to shoot over them. Just throw it to John Paxson. And right. And Paxson, John Paxson everything. But yeah, pa- I want to yeah. touch on game one again for a minute because, again, as a Bulls fan, what game one was traumatic because it's like, here you have them go in and wreck the Pistons. I mean, just merciful, mercilessly destroy the bad boys. You know, and then they have game one at home against the Lakers and they lose on a Sam Perkins three-pointer. And at the time for me as a Bulls fan, it was like, this was horrible. Like home court advantage, gone. You know, the game one lost. Yet we get Michael's reaction to it. And his reaction was great because he was like, yeah, we lost, but we didn't care because we didn't play well. Like we knew we had them. and. The idea that for Jordan, a loss in game one of the finals was simply reinforcement that they were going to win the whole thing is so funny to watch just from remembering myself being like crushed by it. You know, I kind of I kind of wish I could have called MJ after that to find out what was going on. Um, but yeah, and and then, you know, game two, he goes out and destroys the universe and hits that switch-handed layup that's probably been shown on tv a billion times by now and i still don't think he really had to i think he could have scored with his right but the most amazing part about that shot that you get off that clip is that that was his 13th straight field goal (laughs) like that's like and all the bulls did in game two were have jordan play this like you know all-time game and they put pippen on magic who picked him up full court and that was just it. That was the end of the Lakers. Yeah, I think the growth of Scotty was a really underrated storyline in this episode. Obviously, it's going to get overshadowed by all of the bad boys Isaiah talk. But to see him develop into the second guy next to Michael and for Michael to you know fight alongside him and for him to do that to Magic Johnson in the finals and just beautiful scenes in the locker room, you know, seeing Michael with his dad and Michael and Magic embracing afterwards, uh, you know, the exact opposite of Michael and Isaiah. Do you have any memories from, you know, when they clinched the championship that evening? I mean, I definitely remember seeing him tear up, you know, and obviously that was like, you know, for me and for any fan, I think that was a Jordan we had never seen before. And uh, that was enlightening too, to hear Will Perdue talk in this episode about how they'd never seen Michael like that either. And he said like the only emotions we ever saw out of Michael were anger and frustration. And that championship, as much as a relief it was for Jordan, and finally to put to rest the idea that, 
you know, he was a, a, just a scorer or just a dunker or just whatever, you know, and put him, like he said, in the same category somewhere with Magic and Larry, you know, I think for his teammates, it was probably equally satisfying and equally um, a relief that, oh my God, like maybe like he won't yell at us so much anymore. You know, we, we finally like climb this mountain. I feel like, especially for Jordan, I'm sure that, that joy, that elation, that sense of relief probably lasted about 24 hours before he realized like, oh shit, we need to keep doing this. Yeah. It's exhausting. Just watching Michael's journey. I can't imagine being Michael at that time. So before we wrap up, there's a few more scenes. They cut back to quote unquote present day, the 97, 98 season. And the Packers and Broncos had just played in the Super Bowl, and the Bulls are taking uh, mm -hmm. a team plane for their next game. And Michael's making sure the cameras capture that he's collecting bets from people because he took money off his team. <laughs> yeah. And he, and he gives Scott Burrell a super hard time. And uh, you know, I feel like, I, I don't know, like, obviously this stuff is all edited. Like, I feel like Scott probably gave as good as he got sometimes, you know, as opposed to this little clip where Scott's saying, like, please don't tell my parents about how I go out drinking every night and with a different girl every night. But Scott, Scott was a legit multi-sport athlete who got drafted in the Major League Baseball draft twice. So, I mean, he always had that over Jordan. So I, I hope he did, like, I hope he did give some stuff back. Although I think my favorite exchange in that part was Jordan calling out Bill Wennington, who was filming it all with his little handheld, calling him the, the highest paid person in media. And Bill comes back with, what about Ahmad Rashad? And Jordan's like, Ahmad wishes you got paid what he got paid. And uh, of all people to know what Ahmad was making, MJ probably knew. Bill Wennington, you need to release your own last dance, man. I know he's got all the footage too. It's probably true. It's probably true. <laughs> No, I love the I love the friendship between Michael and Scott Burrell. They obviously partied together a lot that season. And then, you know, and then to close out the episode, we get a bit of a cliffhanger where it's like, again, Jerry Krause, master of doing the dumbest thing at the dumbest possible time, you know, reiterates that Phil's not coming back and that if Michael doesn't want to play for any other coach but Phil, he's out of luck. And that they wish he'd come back and play for someone else, but he's probably not going to. And rather than saying this at the end of the season, he says this right at the All-Star break, right when they're going into Utah to play the Jazz, who they played in the previous finals. You know, leaving kind of Michael out there to get all these questions once again from the media. Are you sure you're not going to come back? Are you sure you wouldn't play for anyone else? And Jordan, to his credit, is like, I said what I said. If Phil's not the coach, I'm not playing. Like, he could not have been more clear about it. Imagine telling the best player in the world that if you choose to leave because we hire a new coach, that's your that's on you. That's basically what Jerry Krause was saying. And I think, you know, Jordan, to his credit, and, you know, I think, again, like, as we go along through this series, you get, like, this better sense of how frightening his perception of things are and, like, how perceptive he is about everything it's like jordan knew from that point on and from that from even before that like if he leaves after saying that people aren't going to blame him they're going to blame jerry kraus it was very simple if you want to keep michael jordan you keep the coach that had won five championships and was possibly on his way to his sixth 
no one's going to look at that and be like, oh, well, Jordan's being a prima donna or that, you know, Phil should have done whatever. No, you keep the guys who are winning while they're winning. So Kraus was really, really, really putting himself out on a limb. And obviously, hindsight being what it is, that was a terrible idea. So before we wrap up, one more thing for you, Russ. We're obviously entering the first three-peat of the Bulls in the 90s in the episodes coming up. What are you most looking forward to? For me, I'm excited to see them cover the Barcelona Olympics and probably touch on when Michael and Scotty went at Tony Kukoc. And I'm excited for them to finally introduce the Knicks. I hope they have a lot of the Knicks guys. Maybe John Starks can make a cameo. I would certainly love to hear Tony's stories from Barcelona. I guess what I'm looking forward to most is actually the 92 finals. And I cannot wait to hear anything from anyone on the Blazers about Jordan's six three-pointers and the shrug. And also Magic Johnson, who the shrug was directed at because Magic was actually announcing that game for NBC. So yeah, I mean, any of that, just little bits of insight, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen anything. Are we not going to get Charles Barkley at all? Because if we don't, that seems tragic. I assume, I guess he might show up, right? For the 90, 93 finals. I mean, you would think he would. I know they've had apparently some, some I don't know what to call it, misunderstandings or, you know, disagreements of late. So maybe he doesn't. And I mean, I'm obviously looking forward to way more Horace Grant. Like he's got to go from supporting actor to a lead role in this because he's been amazing. That does it for us for this episode. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. You can find all the episodes of After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms you use to listen to your podcast. Want to give Soul Savvy a shout out once again, and we will be back next week to cover episodes five and six. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you then. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers is becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.